Real quick before we jump in, I'll just say that thank you to everyone for last week for turning in um, the comments about um, your Linton experience in the past. They, uh, all the cards we got are, are up displayed on the wall back there, the walls to that, that big closet. So please take time to go, go look at them. Maybe just read four or five and put a check mark by any of those where you're like, yes, it's kind of our own like or thumbs up on the wall. It's very, very low tech, but that'll let people know this resonates with me. And if you're looking for ideas of what to give up for Lent, you can head back there as well. And there's, there's all kinds of interesting stuff, man. This, this church is so funny. It's just the best. So um, feel free to, to read that today. Um, one of the realities of the human condition um, involves this idea that our culture shapes us and forms us in ways um, that we often just are completely unaware of. Our culture, in a sense, gives us these lenses through which we view the world, and we're mostly unaware of them, but they're always on. They're blinding us to some things and heightening our awareness of other things. Almost before the light of the world hits our eyes, these lenses have already done their work, determining what we see, what we ignore, what we react to, how we react to anything we encounter. These lenses that we wear color our interpretation of our experience of the world at a very basic level. For instance, last week in the Super Bowl, on the Chiefs' final drive, there was a holding call. Here's, here's a picture of the holding call. And um, e- even though the defender like, actually said in the press conference afterwards, I totally held. I was just hoping that the ref wouldn't call it. Still, Eagles fans spent the whole week complaining about this call. Why? Because they have these great big green lenses through which they're seeing this, <laughs> this picture, right? And Chiefs fans, we spent the whole week saying, what, are you just going to let people cheat at the end of the game? That's what we would say, right? Because we have these big red lenses in which... Lenses you're wearing determine the meaning you will make of this picture, even though it's obviously a hold. Um, I'm just saying, because I wear red lenses. I remember a few years ago, um, it was a KU-K-State basketball game, and at the end of regulation, a KU player fouled a K-State player, just hacked him, but they didn't call it, because they often don't call that at the end of the game, and of course, the the K-State fans were going crazy. Why? because they wear these big purple lenses. And it was interesting in that game, because what happened afterwards is they went into overtime, and at the very end of the overtime, the same thing happened, only the opposite. A K-State player fouled a KU player, only this time they called it. Why? Because Big 12 refs wear these great big crimson and blue (laughs) glasses, always. And why do I think this? Because I wear these big purple glasses, or else also because it's true. But we, we all, you, you get the picture, right? We all wear these lenses that color the way we, we view the world. And the thing is, we can only see what our lenses allow us to see. And that's just the truth of the human condition. And the, the problem is, in the Sermon on the Mount that we're reading from in this season... Um, Jesus is, is describing a whole new way to see the world. And he was trying to give his followers new lenses through which to view reality. And it was true at the time, it's still true today, that some of what he taught is so 
um, challenging and radical that when we encounter it, our lenses almost, they just blind us to the truth of what he's saying. They keep us from seeing the reality he's describing. It's never more true than in the passage we just read a few minutes ago. Um, because we've been wearing these 20th, 20th, 21st century lenses, American lenses, our whole time. So we, when we encounter Jesus' teaching, particularly on nonviolence during conflicts, we have these assumptions that sort of blind us. That, that We just think that violence is the way the world has to be. And, and our, our cultural lenses, and for some of us, even our religious training can, can make it hard to see what Jesus is teaching. And so we're probably in for, this is my disclaimer, we're in for some uncomfortable moments today as we read this text because we're just going to try to let it shine through our, our lenses and strain to see what he's saying. I always think it helps to have sort of an exemplar, like a person who embodies his teaching. And sometimes there aren't even Christians. In fact, one of my favorite for this is um, actually a, 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 um, a Hindu revolutionary named Mahatma Gandhi. Um, if you remember your, your kind of Western civilization history, by the early 1900s, Europeans had conquered or, or colonized most of the world. They had the best guns and ships, and everywhere they went, they would subjugate and somewhat exploit native peoples who never seemed to see it coming. And they colonized most of Africa, Asia, the Pacific, North and South America, and Gandhi was born in India in like 1869. So really close to, to put it in perspective, that's about the time Abraham Lincoln was shot. And, and he was born into British colonial rule. And that was just the world he lived in. At 18, he, he went to England to go to university, then law school, then moved to South Africa for like two decades um, to be a lawyer. This is during apartheid in South Africa, so he faced horrible racial discrimination. I mean, the, the, the whites in South Africa kind of terrorized people of color. And so he, he would describe just walking down the sidewalk and being someone who would just spit on him as he walked past him. Or they'd call him a parasite and a canker. And this gave Gandhi kind of a new lens through which to see the world. He wasn't that political before this, but after this, he began... Um, political action and organizing, forming organizations, leading protests, and became a very capable leader. And 20 years later, at age of 45, he, he went to back home to India to help lead the civil rights movement there, and eventually became the, the main leader of India's resistance to British colonial rule. He was kind of India's Abraham Lincoln, only his entire movement was nonviolent. He said, whenever you are confronted with an opponent, conquer him with love, which comes straight from Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And Gandhi dedicated his life to conquering his oppressors with love. He would often say the line, I'm willing to die for my cause, but there is nothing for which I am willing to kill. And he became committed to nonviolence, which meant he had to find really creative ways to protest, like alternatives to to guns and bombs. And so he would sometimes show up at his most ruthless um, oppressors' houses on their kids' birthdays with handfuls of presents for their children, just to give to their kids, just an act of kindness. 
Most of his followers were Hindu, but the British soldiers were mostly Christian. And so once um, Easter, they were in the middle of a protest, and he sent word to the, the um, commanders that they had called off demonstrations on Easter Sunday so that they could all go to church. In one of their really big marches, um, the hot midday sun was scorching the white skin of the young British soldiers. And so Gandhi, in the middle of it, just sent word saying, we're going we're gonna to stop because we're kind of worried about your guys. We'll come back in the evening when it would be a little more comfortable for, for them. That's what he did. And it turns out this was incredibly effective. Gandhi ap- accomplished essentially the same results of the American Revolution without ever firing a shot. So where, where did he get this teaching? Where did he get this lens through which to see the world? Well, he didn't get it from the Christians that he knew, but he did get it from Jesus. And I choose those words carefully. If you study the life of Gandhi a little bit, you learn very quickly he was an ardent admirer of Jesus, but he was always fighting against powerful Christians. He read Christ's teachings. He knew them. He spoke about Christ constantly and sought to follow Jesus in his own life. In fact, he talked about Jesus so much, he was always being asked, why don't you just stop pretending and, and out yourself? Like, just start saying yourself, you're a Christian. And one time his answer was, was this. He said, the Christians I know don't really follow the teachings of Jesus. So why don't I, why don't I just be a Gandhi who follows Jesus instead of a Chris, Christian who doesn't? Ouch. And of course he's right. Christians don't have such a great track record when it comes to loving our enemies. Although for the first couple hundred years of the church, they really did. Christians practiced nonviolence without compromise. They loved their enemies. They turned the other cheek and went the extra mile. They they would not participate in violence. In fact, early Christians wouldn't even um, do military service because of the Sermon on the Mount and this ethic of nonviolence. It was considered essential teaching, and they followed it for the first couple of centuries until kind of this radical plot twist nobody saw coming. The Roman emperor, Constantine, who often killed Christians, suddenly declared himself a Christian and began to convert all of the Roman Empire to Christianity. He would hold these massive baptisms with tens of thousands of people um, converting with little or no discipleship whatsoever. The upside was they stopped killing Christians in Rome. This was nice. The downside was Rome was completely dependent on violence. Like, how do you, how do you fight your wars, protect your borders, and conquer new people, given Christ's teaching on nonviolence? And so what Constantine did is ask some of his influential church leaders to find him a loophole, a way around it, Christ's teaching on nonviolence. And, and they did, and Christians have been using these ever since. There were different ones. Like, it would say, well, that just only applied to the first disciples, but, but nobody else. Or this only applies, like, after Christ's return, or it only applies to maybe special cases of Christian classes of people like monks or priests or clergy. Or, or the Protestant one, one used in America a lot, is that Jesus didn't expect that you could do it. He'd expect that you, you would fail and then, and then beg for God's mercy. And of course, none of these are supported by Scripture. I mean, listen to how Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount. This is his last line in his sermon. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. 
He said, this is how a wise person lives. They build their life on this foundation, this sermon that I'm preaching. It's not for a far-off distant future or a special class of monks and priests. In John 14, he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Not you'll crash and burn and beg for mercy. He's like, you can do this. His instruction, he considered it the best way to live and thought it would be followed. And really, during the first two or three hundred years, almost every Christian writing, even scripture, included firm teaching on Christian nonviolence. But after Constantine, this, this starts to disappear. Although God seemed to preserve it in, in a couple of different groups that still would embody this idea, groups like the monastics, monks and nuns, and the Anabaptist tradition. They all practiced nonviolence, were often considered a threat to the state and persecuted or killed. One of the famous ones is a guy named Dirk Willems. He lived in the mid-1500s. He was one of the Anabaptists who resist a state church, a state Christian church, that um, continued to do violence in the name of Christ. And they protested this, and they were nonviolent, so they just, you know, were, were pretty well squashed. And there's this great story. Willems was once fleeing from an officer of the state. He was running across this frozen lake in wintertime, and the man who was chasing him was really heavy set, and he fell through the ice. And Willems looked back and saw him and knew this guy, he's not getting out, like, He's going to die if I don't help him. And he remembered this line, do good to those who persecute you. And so he actually returned and helped this officer out of the lake. He rescued him and he stayed with him and, and dried him off and warmed him up. And the man promptly arrested Dirk Willems, took him to jail, where he was tried and convicted and burned at the stake, which I admit may not be the greatest advertisement for Christian nonviolence. <laughs> Um, I mean, Dirk Willems died, so what is this really accomplishing? Um, but what happened is, Dirk Willems' story was told over and over, and I mean, we just, we just told it. And it had a big impact on many Christians over the years, some of whom became very influential in their own right. People like Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist. He read Anabaptist writings. He studied Willems. And because of this, this influence, Tolstoy based his life and his writings on the Sermon on the Mount. And decades later, a young man attending law school in London began to read Tolstoy and his thoughts on the Sermon on the Mount, and they deeply impacted him. You know who it was? Mahatma Gandhi. Twenty years later, a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was struggling under the Third Reich, and he studied Tolstoy and Gandhi. He actually, there's actually a letter he wrote that survives. He wrote Gandhi saying, thank you, and I hope to meet you someday, which never got to happen. Clear back in South Africa, where he had been for a couple decades, Nelson Mandela read War and Peace by Tolstoy and studied Gandhi, embracing his teaching. A few years later, a young pastor in America named Martin Luther King Jr. read Tolstoy, studied Gandhi, and began to follow the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this is, this is Tolstoy, Gandhi, Bonhoeffer, Mandela, King. These guys had a dramatic impact on our world. They all built their house on the rock of the Sermon on the Mount, drawing on Dirk Willems and his story in the Anabaptist tradition on Christian nonviolence. And their lives challenge us 
to try to remove our own, you know, 21st century American lenses that color our assumptions about the necessity of violence in our world and to try to just consider Christ's teachings. That's what I want us to do today. Our text is a continuation of last week. It's the, it comes from the you've heard it said but I say section where Jesus is kind of pushing back against conventional wisdom. And it begins um, saying, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Okay, so this is, this is one of those times that, that English almost distorts the original meaning. Jesus says, do not, in English, it's do not resist an evil person. Um, the, the word is antistami. Stay me. I always get, it's a tongue twister for me. Antistami. Anti means uh, against. Stami means stand in Greek. So it literally means stand against. Do not stand against. The problem was this, this word wasn't taken literally at the time. Antistami had become a Greek idiom. And it um, was mostly only ever used and really meant military conquest. Um, Full on battle. It's almost exactly like our phrase, go to war, which can mean a lot of things. It can mean actually go to war. Usually, like, hey, man, they, he decided just to go to war. And it can rep- apply to almost anything. That's, that's antistami. And so uh, a good contemporary translation would be, do not go to war against an evil person or do not return fire or, or fight back in kind. And then Jesus gives this scenario to explain it. He says, if anyone slaps rapizzo you on, on the right cheek. Now, Right should, bells should be going off in our head, especially what, considering what we talked about last week. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus says, if your right eye, your law-keeping eye, causes you to sin, if your right hand, your law-keeping hand, causes you to sin. Remember this from last week? Okay, so here he specifies right cheek. So we should be going, okay, this is the law-keeping cheek. So what in the world is a law-keeping cheek? Okay, well, in, in Roman culture... They had very rigid, um, a, a rigid class social structure. For citizens, there were the patricians. They were above the plebeians. For non-citizens, the freedmen were above the slaves. And the Roman laws specified that you could not punch somebody from a lower class. Or you, you couldn't even like open-handed slap somebody. That was considered assault and you would get in trouble. You could slap them, but you could only backhanded slap them, right? That's rapizzo, a person of a lower, lower class. It's the slap of an insult to put someone in their place. To punch them or open-handed slap them, this was only allowed among equals. You couldn't do it to people of a lower class. And they had, each class had their own distinctive dress, like the toga meant you were part of that patrician class, right? If somebody in a toga was hitting somebody in a freedman's cap or dressed as a slave, they they could be charged with assault. There was also this kind of taboo or this custom with the use of the left hand. It was was considered unclean, right? The left hand was essentially, it was toilet paper in the ancient world or anything gross. You did it with your, your left hand. So they did not touch people, other people with their left hand. They almost always held it behind their back. They, w- they wouldn't even gesture with the left hand while they were talking. Um, we, we shake hands with the right hand now. This is why. 
It goes all the way back to this. So, so you can't punch someone or open hand slap someone unless they're your equal. And you can slap an inferior person, this, this slap of insult, but only with your right hand, right? So those are the rules of engagement that we can't see, but those are behind. This is just the assumption everybody had when they heard slap. And so here, here's the, the scenario that he describes. So just, I won't make anybody do it, but just imagine there's somebody facing me right here, right? And, and let's say it's, it's a carpenter in Galilee and I'm the boss and they've made a mistake and I wanna go, I wanna, I wanna slap them and put them in their place. As a superior, I could not like, punch them or smack them, all I can do is, is this deal, right? So if they're standing here facing me, that's their right cheek that, that I would slap always. It's only ever slap of insult ever goes to the right cheek, which is exactly what Jesus says. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek. So that's the exact scenario he's describing happened every single day. It's how they reinforced their status. The patricians would slap the the plebes, the plebes would slap the freedmen, the freedmen would slap the slaves, and the slaves would go wee, wee, wee all the way home, or whatever it is. They, <laughs> they would slap each other. And, and, and Jesus, so he says, if someone rapizzo slaps you, uh, gives you a slap of insult on your face, do not um, antistemi, or stemi. Don't um, go to war. Don't return in kind. Don't don't slap them back. You'll lose. You'll get arrested and probably just publicly flogged. That's what will happen. But when we hear turn the other cheek, what, what we've kind of been programmed to hear is cower in fear. Or just ask, you know, thank you, sir, may I have another? Which is, you know, animal house, not Sermon on the Mount. Um, these are different, different ideas here. He's not saying just take it or ask for more. He says... A specific thing, turn the other cheek. So if I've just slapped somebody here and then turn the other cheek, they're facing this way now. I can't slap them again. They're, you would hit their nose. It just doesn't work. You can't, they're turning that way. You can't do the slap of insult. And so th- what he's recommending is actually it's a, an act of non-compliance. If you turn your head, you can't slap like, like this anymore. I, and you could do it this way, but you don't slap with the left hand. That'd be even worse. And so to turn the other cheek is actually, it doesn't mean take a beating. It means halt the abuse by repositioning yourself. And they would have all understood this because this, this situation was a daily thing. Just, just it's like, do like this and then, and then turn your head so that the wrong cheek. And then they're stuck. They have to either treat you like an equal, and they can give you a beating, but they're treating you like an equal, plus they can get in trouble, or they have to leave you alone. So it's an act of non-compliance, this kind of third way. In fact, this is often called third way nonviolence. Um, and it robs them of the ability to abuse and humiliate, and it also kind of puts them in a bind. If they continue to do that, they, they can get in trouble. And so what Jesus essentially teaches is that between like a violent response and no response at all, there is a world of creative possibilities for how to respond. I mean, there's no denying injustice and and conflict and violence and mistreatment, but between doing nothing or just declaring enemies and going to war, there's a world of creative possibilities. Let's, Let's do the next one. He says, 
if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, so the, the, the cloak or coat and tunic or shirt thing. Most peasants in the ancient world only had two pieces of clothing. There was a cloak and a tunic. Um, the, the tunic was like an a ankle-length shirt. And then the cloak was this, this big wool thing. If you were in debt, somebody in the ancient world, they could take your house, they could take your possessions, they could take your land, they could even take the tunic, the shirt off your back. The one thing they weren't allowed to take was your cloak. Everybody was allowed to always have a cloak. It's, wool cloaks were, it was like part bedroll, part protection from the elements. You just always had one. And, and so Jesus says, if your creditors come after you and they take everything, even the shirt, even shirt off your back, then you should, even though they can't take your cloak, take it off and give it to them. And then you would be standing there just stark naked, right? Just keep undressing until you're naked. And in their culture, of course, nakedness doesn't shame the naked person. It shames the person looking on them. It shames the one who sees them and has not clothed them, or in this case, who caused their nakedness. And Jewish law even says you must clothe the naked. So it's this third way, this creative way that robs the person of the ability to humiliate them. In fact, it humiliates them. It exposes their kind of predatory financial practices that don't match what God's ideal is. And then he states God's ideal. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. It's just basically be generous. Like look out for each other. Take care of each other. Let's, let's do the next one. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is another deeply kind of marked by the culture thing. So Roman soldiers who didn't have a horse were allowed to, on Roman roads, if they met somebody, they were allowed to force that person to turn around and walk with them, carrying their pack. They had like all their equipment in a pack, about 80, 90 pounds. They had to carry it for one mile, and they, could, they were not allowed by law to carry it more than one mile. In fact, they, on all the um, Roman roads all over the world, they had these mile markers, these stones. In fact, that's where we get the word milestone. They're, they're, they're still in existence all over the world. And so it was this regulation. You can carry it for one mile, no more. And so Jesus says, okay, do the first mile, because it's law. Do the second mile of your own free will. And, and you will prove that you're free, for one thing. But you'll also expose the injustice of the situation. You actually put them in a situation where they're breaking the law. Like, they, they might even have to ask you, like, can I have my pack, please? Like, you're going to get me in big, big trouble. It's this third way, this creative way to rob the oppressor of the ability to humiliate, right? And so this is all part of the you've heard it said, but I say section. That, that, and, and it's teaching us anytime we face some sort of conflict, or the potential for violence, some sort of injustice or oppression, that these two extremes of like go to war, return fire, um, escalate the violence, or cowering in fear, just taking it, both of those end up um, diminishing our humanity and that of the the oppressor even. They, They lead down a path that's inhuman, inhumane, and dehumanizing. But between those 
to response, a violent response, and no response at all. There's a world of creative responsibilities. Like, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Um, strip down naked in front of your creditors and be like, what? What else do you want from me? You've taken everything, right? And what he's recommending is, is actually in, like, um, Christian nonviolence in the theologies of Christian nonviolence, often called non-complementary behavior. Um, most of the time, humans, we just, we just mirror each other behaviorally. Like, you're kind to me, I'll be kind to you, right? You're, you're hostile to me, I'll be hostile to you. That's what we do. Breaking this pattern is called non-complementary behavior. You come at me with coldness and hostility, and I come back with warmth and friendship. That's non-complementary behavior. And Jesus teaches that meeting aggression with aggression, you know, meeting violence with violence, it just spirals. Meeting evil with evil cannot produce good. It just multiplies evil. It always takes some sort of non-complementary action. The ultimate of this, of course, is the cross, where Christ is nailed to it by his enemies, the, and by the Jewish people or the leaders, and then the, um, the, the Roman authorities, and forgives them for what they're doing. This, this is the exemplar. That's total non-complementary behavior. And um, th- this, it, it takes some sort of non-complementary action to kind of break the cycle of violence. You have to meet aggression with gentleness. This has the potential to change the situation. If you meet aggression with aggression, it'll spiral. Um, Meet gossip with face-to-face conversation. Meet bravado and ego with acts of humility. Meet hatred with acts of love. Meet violence with acts of peacemaking, acts of kindness, meet evil with acts of goodness, meet enemies with acts of of friendship. Don't go to war and don't cower in fear. But between those extremes, there's a world of possibilities if we just have the imagination for it. There's always a third way, some sort of creative way. It's it's non-complementary action, like, like Gandhi giving presents to his oppressors. It's very difficult to do because of these lenses that we wear that blind us to the possibilities. And we're just so shaped by the assumption that violence is, is everywhere. It becomes hard to believe that Jesus as teaching is, is possible and that the ultimate power in the world is not violence but actually love. Violence is weird that way. It kind of really dulls the human imagination This is part of why I think the church exists at all. Because we need a place to try and practice this stuff, this ethic of nonviolence. We need to reinforce it through story and tradition and exemplars among our community. This idea that love is stronger than than hate. We need to see that happen. We need somebody to embody it. People striving toward non-complementary behavior so we can experience the truth of what Jesus is teaching. Like when people say that they're you hear a lot, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. This is one of the things they're missing. Like We need a community to help us practice this kind of stuff. Living as if Jesus, what he says is true, and failing and sometimes succeeding and, and, and working to get new lenses because we can see one another. It's part of what it means, means to be part of redemption. We're trying to learn how to avoid the dehumanizing extremes and find this radical third way. 
And after kind of explaining this, Jesus launches into, he just pulls out all the stops in this last section. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I love this section. I mean, it's, it's hard to follow. But I, I think it, it does expose the way that the problem of violence has this dehumanizing impulse. It mentions being children of a father. In heaven. And I don't know if you think about it, but if we, if we have enemies or, you know, if we define our group, ourselves, over and against our enemies or some other group, there's what we are is we are not them, you know? If we do this, what that means is we actually need them. We require them just for our own identity. They're, they're part of us, even our enemies, and we're part of them. And we can tell ourselves in, in that situation that the problem is always out there, but there's kind of no out there. We're linked ontologically. And this is ultimately dehumanizing for them and for us. I mean, if we're inescapably part of each other, then the problem is never just them. It's always us. And so I mean, Jesus is like, might as well love your enemies because we're linked the level of identity. And then he, he states in, the, in this last section, that, you know, the problem is God doesn't have enemies. God doesn't hate our enemies. He says God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteousness. It's, it's just saying God just blesses. That's what God does. I mean, you don't drive by like a field with a really great wheat crop and go, well, that must be a Christian. And then you go by a field that's like flooded out or, or, or terrible and go, well, clearly an atheist farmer is at work here, right? We just, it's not how the world works. God just pours out God's blessings on the world, on everybody. Because God doesn't have enemies. God has children, he says. And so we're not supposed to have enemies either. We're supposed to have siblings. Everyone is our brother and sister. This is, this is the way of, of Christ. I mean, I, I know the world is really jacked up. I have this friend I went through my doctoral program in. She's in, in Ukraine. She's in Kiev. And this has been, God, it's been a year, man. And uh, I just keep thinking, like, when will this nightmare end for her? For her. And another question is how? How does it end? Injustice, violence, oppression, systemic problems, war. How does it end? If finally somebody gets all the power? I mean, you've seen Star Wars. This doesn't work. It's not going to work. The empire is bad, right? <laughs> This is how, Jesus is just saying, this is how. 
You have to find a third way between going to war and just taking it, a creative way to expose the situation and invite your enemy to become your friend. This is how it happens. And the way we do it is non-complementary options. And the way we learn how to do this is we come together in a community and we say, we're going to be nonviolent, right? Even though I want to kill somebody, we're going to be nonviolent, right? And you say, too, yeah, we're going to try to be long. And we, we try to hold each other to that commitment. And we fail. We totally fail. But we keep coming back, trying to learn how to meet aggression with gentleness and ego with humility, violence with, with peacemaking, exclusion with embrace, meet evil with goodness, and to meet our enemies with Love and friendship, it's really hard to do. But this is how, in the very last line, this is how we be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word is teleos. It just means the end in mind. It just means, um, if I was saying it in modern parlance, it would be, be fully human, as human was intended to be. be. Be fully human as God is fully God. That's, that's all it means. It's, all this is is learning how to be a human being. And it involves a, a commitment to one another and to the world to love our enemies and find this middle way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this Sermon on the Mount and this teaching, for what a challenge it is, and... And we confess that we're probably not very good at this most of the time. But I do pray that you would make us a community of practice where we try, where we keep chasing it. Forgive us um, when we go to war. And I pray that you would fire our imagination for peace and for how to love our enemies. We love you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we're going to receive communion now. If you're new, the way that we do communion is we'll just um, release row by row. The ushers will release us, and um, you'll come forward and be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer back by just saying, um, I will remember, or however you're used, to, you're used to responding. The reason we do that, this is on the night that Christ was betrayed, like his last night with his friends. He gathered them all and they shared a common cup and, and a loaf of bread. And they all just took a piece of the bread and they all drank some of the cup as if to say we're all together on this. And then he, he said, this is a symbol. The, the bread is like my body. The, the cup is like my blood. He's saying, I want you to, to, every time you gather, do this and receive my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then live out into the world and be salt and light. Be, be my hands and feet to the world. And so this is why whenever we gather, we, we repeat this kind of common meal um, symbolically partaking in Christ's life together. And this is also why everyone's welcome at the table. You don't have to have your act together. None of us have our act together.
um, especially around this teaching for today. So um, anybody is welcome to join. And I would invite everyone to join me in blessing um, the bread and the cup. Well, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?